Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Sheila Foster and Christian Ione, authors of Co-Cities, Innovative Transitions Toward Just and Self-Sustaining Communities, published last year by MIT Press. Drs. Foster and Ione, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So to start us off, why don't you each tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. So I'll start. Um, first of all, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having us on. Um, I am a law professor, someone who's trained in law, but also have a joint appointment with the public policy school at Georgetown. And the way that I came to this subject was by starting my career looking at questions of environmental inequity or what we call environmental injustice. And where that led me to was to really thinking about the relationship between uh, law policy and the way in which people live in their communities. And I was particularly interested in this question uh, from an urban perspective, uh, not only because I've lived in a number of cities myself. Uh, I was born in Detroit, raised in Miami. I've lived in San Francisco, Philadelphia, New York, Washington, D.C., and just am fascinated by the way that uh, cities shape their communities and communities are shaped by them. But more particularly, this issue of environmental injustice was concentrated in, uh, in cities, but also in the most uh, disinvested uh, and marginalized neighborhoods. So the way I came to this topic of uh, co-cities was asking about the larger relationships between how we structure our communities uh, and not just these small legal questions about how we could, you know, bring claims or bring a dispute in front of a court or agency uh, to get a particular community relief. And it was really when I met Christian Uh, that we realized that we were thinking the same way about how the infrastructure of a place, of a city, um, or of a region, really, uh, should be one that is more shared to produce uh, a host of goods for communities, including um, environmental goods, as well as health and jobs and uh, food and uh, broadband and connectivity. So I'll stop there but that's how I came to this. 
Okay, regarding me, I was at the beginning of uh, my career working on uh, um, you know, public financing of uh, infrastructure and uh, public services, and I was kind of fed up with the conventional wisdom that uh, would see only in public-private partnerships and public-private cooperation the recipe, the right recipe, that you know, also led to the privatization of a lot of... Uh, uh, in public assets, public infrastructure, and public services in the European Union back in uh, in the zero years of uh, this century. So uh, I was, uh, and I'm still is, a professor of uh, public law and policy. Uh, today I deal with innovation and sustainability issues, uh, also because uh, you know, the reason why I invested so much time on the study of these topics is because I think that public policy can enable social justice issues, social justice goals, and, uh, and you need to, to have a different governance approach, essentially. And that was the, uh, you know, the research question that uh, led me to this wonderful encounter, intellectual encounter with, uh, with, with Sheila Foster. Okay, so you start off the book by prominently citing Eleanor Ostrom, who I love, but you don't see her talked about a lot in books about you know, urban issues. So could you talk about what can Ostrom's writing about the commons tell us about cities? You know, how is it useful for thinking about cities? And then also what aspects of her work need to be adapted or added to to fit an urban context? So let me give the first question a try, and I'll leave the second part of that to Christian. What can Eleanor Ostrom teach us about cities? A lot, we think. Um, when I first started looking at Ostrom's research and applying it to the city, it was back in about 2010. Um, and my interest was in asking the question whether in cities, we can see the kind of collective action or collaborative action that Ostrom found in nature uh, with regard to natural resources. And I found that there are similarities between people who come together around a shared resource. It could be a park, it could be neighborhood streets and safety, um, or it could be a community garden, that uh, what we see in cities is actually a lot of collective action, a lot of overcoming of overcoming of the obstacles to collective action, and uh, the ability of groups, and in particular communities, who are proximate to those resources, uh, but not just communities, they often work with other actors, including local officials in the local government, including uh, the private sector, including other institutions uh, that support their efforts uh, to take care of a resource. So to be more specific, a uh, few of the things that I looked at and studied and asked how similar this was to Ostrom's findings were park conservancies. Um, in cities or small park groups that manage neighborhood parks, uh, community gardens, for instance, uh, neighborhood watch groups uh, that uh, take care of their streets. Uh, and those are the most prominent examples that we see across a range of cities. There are clearly differences, and I'll leave that to Christian, uh, because one of the things that we talk about is 
um, how we needed to move beyond Ostrom um, in order to really understand this phenomenon of collective action in cities. In, in, yes, so we, we came to, you know, to call it the Ostrom in the city hypothesis. So, and the idea is, again, that uh, communities, communities should be at the, uh, at the table uh, and they should be sharing uh, power, uh, proceeds, uh, decisions, not just uh, participate to the decisions of either the public or the private sector. So in our quest for new modes of governance that would go beyond public and private cooperation, we came to describe these as public-private community partnerships. And then in uh, studying the, the different case studies and the different experiments that uh, we ourselves run in different cities in, uh, different cities in the European Union and now uh, also in the US, uh, we understood the importance also of other actors uh, that uh, could be considered uh, community-based uh, as much as those that uh, have uh, a localized community. And I'm talking about uh, knowledge institutions like universities, research centers, uh, schools, uh, um, uh, cultural centers that are animated by, by communities, but also informal groups, social movements, younger generations uh, uh, that uh, activate themselves uh, to fight social justice and climate justice. So these are the, uh, the helixes that together, of course, with the more established uh, uh, civil society organizations should be uh, somehow um, partners in this, uh, in, in, in cooperating towards uh, uh, reaching these, uh, these, uh, these goals. And so Essentially, this was the, the main uh, teaching of Ostrom studies, that the cooperation enables uh, in the uh, survivability and the, the thriveness of, uh, of, of local communities. So it's, only, it's in this uh, technology called cooperation that lies uh, uh, the possibility for uh, you know, communities to, to have success. Now, you need to have... Uh, and we came up with some design principles, much like Ostrom did, uh, for the kind of communities that she was studying. So rural communities, close-knit, very homogeneous communities, which are not the same, which is not the same in, in the city, where you have very conflictual, highly diverse, and uh, sometimes uh, not the same, you know, the similar ties, social ties that are easy to create in, uh, in small rural communities. Right. So just to put a pin in that, one of the ways we're going beyond Ostrom is that in many of her case studies, they were small, homogeneous communities around a natural resource. Um, and with the exception of a couple of the case studies that looked at regional water basins, um, you didn't see much about other actors, in particular the state. So we have a very uh, robust role of, in particular, state actors, along with the other kinds of interests and actors that Christian mentioned. Um, and that's one of the ways that we've gone a step beyond her because when you bring her insights into the urban area, uh, you have to take into account the political economic uh, context uh, and the social economic context in which these resources are embedded and that require more to cooperatively manage them with the community. Yeah, so a lot of that 
classic Ostrom inspired commons research will start with a specific resource that's the the common uh, the commons that's being managed whether it's you know a forest or a water body or, or something like that usually a natural resource so what are some examples of kind of the range of resources or, or things that are being managed as a commons that you look at in your book so we look at housing and land, for instance. Uh, so I've mentioned community gardens, mentioned parks, but also uh, housing cooperatives as in land trust or limited equity housing in which uh, the communities that both live in that housing but are also live in the area um, are part of the co-governance structure of that resource. Uh, so. Certainly, we feature community land trust, uh, which have risen in popularity uh, both here and in Europe and then increasingly in Latin America. Uh, broadband provision, for instance, um, we talk about uh, not just uh, the connectivity that can be achieved uh, through basically self-help, which is mesh networks, uh, which again, their examples in Brooklyn, from you know Brooklyn to Detroit to Europe, uh, but also the example in Harlem that we give in the book of creating a community-based broadband network uh, in a smart city, uh, but where one in three households in Harlem and other parts of New York uh, don't have broadband in the home. And uh, working with uh, city officials and the private sector, Microsoft, to create a innovative edge cloud uh, network that is community governed through um, a major stakeholder in there. And then uh, one of the things that we're working on now and that Christian has worked more on in, in Europe, which you'll talk about, is also energy provision, right? Uh, if you think about uh, uh, microgrids and solar panels, community solar, for instance, or um, a microgrid, which again, working with local government and other actors kind of pulls in excess energy from public buildings like the university building or public hospitals that are publicly owned and allows the community to be more sustainable uh, during, or resilient, I should say, during a uh, natural disaster or a heat wave, for instance. Yeah, I would say that at this time, especially at least in Europe, I see a lot of potential, uh, a lot of potential for the energy communities as we finally have a regulatory framework in place that recognizes the right of uh, communities to self-produce and also distribute energy in order to then redirect the proceeds and reinvest the proceeds of these uh, activities on this energy production towards uh, <clears throat> social goals and the improvement of uh, the existing infrastructure in uh, underserved communities. We see a lot of uh, uh, possibility in uh, you know, getting to also the economic sustainability of these communities through uh, the, uh, the energy, you know, energy communities approach. And essentially, this is also similar to the case studies that uh, Sheila was mentioning on broadband networks in, in Reggio Emilia. We have uh, uh, 
this Coviolo Wireless uh, Community Broadband Network that has been up and running since uh, six years now. And they've been, uh, they, they, they reached the break-even point and now they are, this is a thriving community. It was uh, a periphery of uh, this town and now they are, you know, uh, investing on uh, social services, uh, care for elderly people and people with disabilities and, and you know, the, the rejuvenation of uh, public parks. So it's uh, also a, a business model that uh, is being created by by these very entrepreneurial uh, communities. Okay, so the earliest examples that you uh, cite of cities actually implementing this co-cities approach uh, come from Italy. I think Bologna was the, the very first uh, one that you've got, but then it has spread to basically the entire world. You've got examples on you know every continent uh, except uh, Antarctica of that's being implemented uh, today. Although I was looking at the, the map on your website and didn't see anything yet in my city in, in Pittsburgh. Although I know there's been all kinds of discussions about, you mentioned the, the land trusts, they're, they're trying to do that. I guess they haven't quite gotten it um, sorted here. So that led me to wonder, what are some of the, um, the factors that make it more likely that a city might successfully implement some of these uh, co-city type of approaches, uh, you know, whereas other cities might not uh, might not get there. Uh, what are what are some of the things that make it more uh, more feasible for some cities to be at the forefront of this approach? Right. So I think this might be different for different places, uh, both uh, cities, but also countries. And the one thing I would say from the American perspective, uh, right now we're working in Baton Rouge, uh, have talked to people in a variety of cities from Los Angeles to Buffalo about this. And that is the willingness to want to be at the forefront of innovation uh, in terms of governance. Um, So when we think about how cities in particular here govern themselves. Um, uh, You know, they don't in general have a lot of power relative to other levels of governance like, or governments like like, uh, their states and the federal government, but they do control their infrastructure. That's where most of their power lies. So at the very least, a city has 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 got to have a willingness, someone in the city. And when I say the city, I don't mean necessarily the mayor or the city council, but it could be someone in uh, the, the Department of Housing, for instance. So in New York, the Department of Housing under Vicki Bean uh, led the strategy to, um, to uh, catalyze and facilitate community land trusts, for instance. Um, and we also work with someone else in a New York agency, uh, which um, helped to create these kind of uh, laboratories, uh, neighborhood laboratories around uh, using uh, technology and, and, and entrepreneurs to help communities create new kinds of goods and services that better serve them. Um, and in Baton Rouge, it's with the Redevelopment Authority, who again was very much open to rethinking their mission uh, because of the history in this country of redevelopment, authorities and redevelopment uh, during a period called urban renewal, 
really created a lot of mistrust in particular in minority communities. Uh, and those communities are still struggling, notwithstanding a lot of investment that has come their way over the decades. Uh, so this redevelopment agency wanted to um, rethink their mission and to bring in the community to center the community more in redeveloping uh, to to create stewards uh, in the community to uh, steward their own redevelopment. So I think first there has to be a willingness um, uh, on the part of the city to want to innovate in a way that shares some of its power uh, to distribute resources, including the infrastructure of the city, to share that with communities to empower them to work with other actors to engage in these uh, co-city protocols that uh, we talk about in the book. Um, so that's what I'll say for my end. I think that, you know, aside from uh, um, political or bureaucratic willingness, uh, I think that it's also uh, the skills. And it's, it's about, you know, one basic skill that uh, David Graeber would call bureaucratic imagination, the capacity to imagine uh, of, of local governments, of governments in general, to, to imagine different uh, approaches. Because I think that uh, in enabling communities to self-govern themselves, to cooperate with other actors, public, private, uh, social, and, and cultural knowledge, Actors, it's important to to you know uh, reinforce the skills of uh, and so you need to have skills in order to enable more skills in, in local communities. So and I think in this in this uh, from this point of view, it's important also the the role of knowledge institutions and and non governmental organizations, third sector organizations. We saw that uh, when knowledge institutions and NGOs were uh, part of these projects, uh, uh, the cooperation between the public sector, the private sector, and the local communities was uh, really more successful and uh, more sustainable, more feasible, as you as you said, Stanton. So I would think that uh, it's uh, you know one key aspect is the investment on uh, uh, these uh, basic uh, technologies, which is education, which is training and skilling and reskilling of, of people in order to uh, to make you know actors cooperate uh, through these uh, very sophisticated models uh, and modes of governance uh, like the ones that uh, Sheila was mentioning like the CLT the community land trust which is very hard and very difficult to uh, you know to infrastructure and, and to manage and that's probably why you you know you see not so many cases that go in that direction and we need to invest more on skills, essentially. Yeah, so I want to actually pick up on what you're saying about the knowledge institutions, because I think a lot of our listeners are affiliated with universities and other knowledge institutions. So I was wondering if you could maybe give an example or two of cases where uh, you know a university, for example, has played a really key role in kind of what their relationship was with some of the other important stakeholders uh, to make a, a successful application of this co-cities idea. I'll give two for my end, and then uh, Christian has a lot as well. Um, the two places where I've worked most recently, uh, the first I mentioned the, the community-based broadband network in Harlem. Um, 
So, and that involved the university where I was at the time, Fordham University, along with University of Virginia, uh, Arizona State, um, which uh, provided uh, a lot of the technological knowledge and also uh, the capacity to imagine and design a government structure, um, worked with uh, a a social entrepreneur in the community, Silicon Harlem. uh, And also I mentioned the city and and Microsoft gave the servers. Um, And the universities uh, were critical, not just in helping to imagine and providing the capacity and the research around uh, what is an innovative technology, what's called edge cloud uh, networking, uh, but also in uh, one of the things we ran was uh, participatory trials in Harlem uh, through the community actor there, Silicon Harlem, where hundreds, if not thousands of people would come in uh, and not only convene to talk about what this community broadband network would look like, but also uh, some of the uh, the aspects of the network that people needed to uh, use. Uh, so there was a device that, that one could have in their hand that was low cost uh, that could bring in applications from the edge cloud server that would be in your building. So we had trials where people tried that out. And the university um, uh, participants as well as students um, that um, we hired for that reason were were crucial in that project. And similarly in Baton Rouge, uh, we have a project called Co-City Baton Rouge, which has created a combined land trust and land bank. And um, not only myself at Georgetown, but also I have partners from the Marin Institute at NYU um, and working with uh, partners in Baton Rouge, not just the Redevelopment Authority, but Louisiana State, um, uh, um, worked on um, creating this entity, but also co-designing with a lot of the vacant properties down there in the four-mile community that we are piloting this in, co-designing an echo park. And and the co-design of that echo park with the community came out of one of the um, uh, the university's um, uh, laboratories, uh, design laboratories. Uh, so that's a good example of a university on the ground creating capacity with the community to co-design uh, an echo park for that community. And um, as well, we're helping them to set up a community advisory board, uh, which would oversee um, with the CLBT, with the, the Community Land Bank and Trust, which will oversee the development of a host of other projects that are coming online uh, that will be put in that community land bank and land trust. So we both have a governance structure for the community land bank and land trust, uh, which is a public-private community partnership, but also a separate structure that the universities have helped with the nonprofit partners to set up. Um, and we're still setting that up to uh, to to bring in even more community knowledge. Um, And I do want to underline what Christian said, so important skills, what we would call here is capacity building, because there are a lot of nonprofits and community-based organizations in every neighborhood I've ever worked in, no matter how low income. Um, But the one thing that they need to be more effective if they're going to co-govern is capacity. Sometimes that's in 
the form of money, but often it's in the form of partnerships like university community partnerships um, that will help them to achieve their aims. In the environmental area, that was often around community research and science, where universities would help communities um, actually monitor and collect samples to prove that there was too much pollution in their neighborhood, um, even when the agencies, you know, denied what they, uh, or that there was. So I'll stop there and over to Christian. Thank you. I, you know, to explain to an audience of uh, uh, knowledge institutions operators what uh, we have been trying to do uh, here at Lewis University in Rome is I would use the, the, the formula uh, fourth mission. So, which is, uh, you know, the idea that uh, beyond the third mission, we need to work on specific uh, research and innovation projects that empower communities that solve and tackle you know, the sustainable development goals. And in order to do that, we created a laboratory called Green Lab for undergraduate students. We carved a complete, an entire Master of Science in Digital Innovation and Sustainability. Uh, and that, that embeds this idea that essentially uh, we can use universities, but any kind of research uh, facility as a platform for tackling societal challenges and, uh, and uh, you know, convene all the different actors around this, uh, these challenges and find, and find together solutions. We even built a, a university alliance around this uh, basic idea that it's called engageuniversities.eu. It's composed of 10 European Union universities that are working to, you know, uh, traduce this approach into methodologies, uh, into, uh, you know, new, new curricular uh, courses, uh, um, new research projects. And it, it was kind of a successful approach because it's also received uh, the recognition of funding from the most important, uh, uh, you know, science uh, fund, fund, which is called in Europe, Horizon Europe. It's uh, our flagship, uh, you know, the European Commission flagship uh, investment program on uh, uh, you know, frontier research uh, and uh, collaborative research, uh, which signals that probably uh, this is a good way to spend our time uh, as uh, knowledge institutions operators, but also it's a good way to put our, our energies, our ideas at work for, uh, for the common good, for society as a whole. And uh, actually, I came across very recently about this initially that even Columbia University has launched on, uh, they call it the fourth purpose. Uh, uh, essentially, is this, the idea that uh, universities can have uh, a fourth mission, a fourth function, beyond education and, uh, and research and beyond, of course, also the support to the idea of the tribal helix and therefore, you know, the... the the competitiveness uh, challenge that uh, the third mission embeds. All right. So you argue that this co-cities approach can address uh, a whole range of urban problems. Uh, so I'm going to take advantage of being the interviewer to ask you about one that is of particular interest to me, which is, so how can the co-cities idea help with dealing with climate change? 
Yes. So I think climate change is a problem or a challenge that could really benefit from the co-cities idea. And it's something that um, I'm a, uh, that I've been working with for the past uh, six years with the city of New York. I um, uh, sit on the New York City mayor's panel on climate change, heading up the equity, the climate equity work. And uh, from the very beginning, uh, when they asked me to sit on that, uh, I brought the approach of our co-city protocol, which is to ask how can we bring in community men or members to the, uh, not just to participate, but to the core decision-making of the city when it decides how to allocate its resources to address climate change Um and which we know is already happening. And so one of the first things that we did on that panel was to invite communities in to partner, to co-partner with that work. Um, And when we did that, uh, what we soon, uh, or what was revealed to us right away was that there had been a lot of work done in communities. And I think this is true in so many places in the US not just understanding how they're challenged around climate change, and that could be, again, heat, flooding, et cetera, uh, but also what were the ways that they were already adapting and their proposals for adapting. So one community in West Harlem had a whole climate action plan mapped out that included community land trusts, microgrids, a resiliency hub um, uh, that used the city's vacant property. And the challenge from the city's perspective, was that the local government thought they were being effective in partnering with these communities, but really what it was, was just a form of participation, right? So for instance, they would say, we're going to put, you know, solar panels on all public buildings. Um, And and then we'll ask these communities um, to, to help us locate where to put those, where instead what the communities wanted was before you created that program to work with us to design, to um, co-design the approach to sustainability, right, to resiliency in our community. And so I think bringing the co-city approach to that work meant that it had to reposition the actors into a real public-private community or public community, in that case, partnership, and then you bring in uh, private actors. So one way to use the co-city approach around climate change is to recognize that, and we know this from the science, from climate science, that not not everyone is equally situated vis-a-vis climate challenges, and that in order to best respond to the climate crisis, we have to bring in um, the people that are living those crises that are experiencing them, people of all ages, people of all income levels, um, and all kinds of communities to enter into innovative partnerships and even have climate labs in some of these neighborhoods to allow the best ideas for how to create resilient communities to come forth and not only to co-design those ideas, but to put them in place in a way that there's a sustainable partnership between the community and, and the city. 
This is a wonderful question, and actually, it was, uh, you know, the, also for me, one of the reasons why I started uh, studying this. One of the first uh, uh, study is, in fact, called the Tragedy of Urban Roads, and it, it was about the strategies that cities could use in order to mobilize uh, city inhabitants' action uh, to combat climate change. Uh, at the local level, at the city level, by changing the way uh, people move inside cities and therefore the way uh, in transport networks uh, uh, are managed, are regulated. Uh, and, you know, this study is published on the Fordham Urban Law Journal. So uh, the, the idea is essentially that, because at that time when uh, I developed the study, was uh, the, the, the conventional wisdom was we need to fight climate change at the macro level. So remember that it was the discussion was about big emitters and how we create an emission trading system so that uh, we curb their emissions, which is important and is, is relevant and is, is essential. But at the same time, uh, by mobilizing the individual action, the, the local community's action, and by bringing to the table also negotiations at every level uh, of, of negotiation from the national level to the international level where, where all this, this discussion about climate change are taking place, probably we can uh, become, uh, we can have, uh, uh, you know, part of the solution. Because also the dimension of, of, of a distributed, the decentralized answer to such a essential and vital issue like uh, you know climate change could be uh, you know uh, a way to 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 speed up the process and the pace uh, through which by which humanity responds to the daunting challenges that uh, global warming and uh, you know all the related issues uh, are you know are, are producing and uh, in, in, in a way the idea of the commons is about uh, reducing asymmetries uh, decentralizing uh, uh, and climate change uh, from this point of view Ostrom in her speech uh, when she received the Nobel Prize for economy she claimed the importance of polycentricity of polycentrism as a design principle to, to also, uh, you know, respond to climate change, and I think nowadays it's still uh, there is uh, it's still a voice that is uh, not it's, it's stayed inert. In, in somehow we need to listen to the local communities in uh, uh, that that are really fighting uh, somehow sometimes bare hand the, the effects of, and the impacts of climate change. And I want to piggyback on something that uh, Sheila mentioned. Climate change is not affecting, uh, globally speaking, everyone in every country, every region of the, uh, of the planet in the same way. There are regions of the planet uh, that are experiencing a faster pace of climate change. I'm uh, very engaged uh, currently on uh, projects that are related to the Mediterranean and to Sub-Saharan Africa, which where the pace of uh, climate change impact is 20 to 50 percent uh, uh, higher than in other regions of the planet. And I think part of the response has to be the empowerment of local communities. All right. So I now want to move into talking a bit about your 
research methods for this book because you know, a lot of the books that I cover are case studies of you know, one city or a handful of cities, but you're drawing on this database of projects in something like 200 cities around the world that apply this co-cities approach. So how did you go about putting that database together and getting information from so many different uh, places? I'll let Christian take the lead on that one. Thank you. So, I mean, we, the, the idea of the database started because we didn't want to, uh, you know, produce a normative vision of uh, how to apply Ostrom to the city. We wanted to understand if and how this, uh, this approach is community-based uh, governance mechanisms where being shaped by local communities, by cities all across uh, the globe. So we started this, uh, the collection of this, uh, you know, this empirical uh, database, uh, essentially to, to, to understand, to learn. And then we also decided to experiment. You mentioned one uh, experiment that was very successful, that's Bologna, but there are so many other cities that are experimenting different approaches. Only in Italy, Naples, Turin, Reggio Emilia, Rome have different approaches towards this. But uh, in Europe, you have Barcelona, Amsterdam, uh, Gdansk, uh, and many other cities in the world that are Seoul, that are taking a different different avenues, uh, but they're all landing somewhere, somewhere uh, where community-based governance is, is, is empowering and enabled. Uh, so what we understood uh, by analyzing empirically, which means that we, we spoke, we observed uh, to the people involved in these case studies or we practice in some cases uh, and we, uh, we, we experimented in some cases uh, together with, uh, with local communities and local governments, what we learned is, uh, you know, some takeaways that uh, we then uh, synthesized in these uh, five design principles. Uh, one of these is the intensity of, uh, of co-governance. So one thing is to give access or to empower the collective management of public space. Another completely different thing is about uh, is empowering communities to manage networks like uh, communication, energy uh, networks. Of course, the intensity, the degree, the gradient of uh, co-governance is higher in those cases where you have communities managing entire buildings like in, or entire lots of land in the city, like through the community land trust. And we need to be aware of this, that because sometimes you have also uh, local governments that opportunistically empower, uh, you know, co-governance only on public space or only on uh, very, you know, very important critical essential facilities, but they do not uh, alter the asymmetries, the power asymmetries, the economic and social asymmetries that are in the city. Another important element and design principle that we extracted from this analysis uh, is the role of the local government, the, the enabling role, as, as Sheila would call it, of, of the local government. And the other three are related to uh, the uh, economic sustainability that we call the pooling economies. We, we see that the feasibility and the long-term uh, uh, sustainability of these approaches is, is, is possible where 
communities are able are enabled to be economically self-sustainable. And uh, uh, the most important case of this, I would say, is Jackson, Mississippi, where we <laughs> we encountered a case study that is really interesting from this point of view, where you know, or Mondragon or other cities where the cooperative movement was also very much involved, and they were able to create. Uh, you know, this uh, kind of social and solidarity economic uh, models. Last but not least, uh, technology and experimentation, methodologies that enable the, and empower the ownership of uh, uh, highly advanced technological infrastructure on one side, and on the other side, uh, uh, the, the, the possibility to sometimes break away from uh, the ordinary rules and ordinary uh, models, and so to have test beds in which communities are able to, to, to test new models, new solutions, new rules, uh, much like it happens in the research and the technological world, where you have uh, you know, test beds, right? And, that, uh, and they receive some leniency from the regulators in order to, uh, you know, to be able to experiment these new solutions. This is very relevant, for instance, for energy communities, where the regulatory landscape is very thick, and we needed, uh, you know, some uh, uh, regulatory uh, leniency that would be inspired by uh, theories on uh, on experimentalist uh, governance. So the one thing that I would add to what Christian said is that you know our methodological approach to the topic is a kind of mixed method by design. So first of all, as we've talked about Christian and I separately, and then together in a, a Yale article on the city as a commons had been kind of thinking through this normative piece, uh, which is the kind of urban infrastructure or the city itself um, as a, you know, social economic political space, as a common good. So we had been thinking about that already and separately um, had been engaged um, in some of the experimentation. So in Bologna, for instance, Uh, but we wanted to also not just offer a theory of this, but to take the insights that we had already gained through our writing and research and also the beginning of experimentation and and then bringing together scholars around this. In Bologna, we had an international conference called the City as a Commons that was um, a regional conference sponsored by the International Association for the Study of the Commons, Ostrom's uh, research group, basically. Um, and at that conference, a lot of researchers from around the world presented case studies on, let's say, urban commons. So from there, we really wanted to understand better Um, what this could look like and what it does look like in different places around the world. And that's why we cast the net so wide. Um, And then, uh, based on the principles that Christian just articulated, those design principles that we both extracted from our theoretical insights, our practical knowledge, and then the surveys... um, we created a kind of code book and uh, guidelines for our, our researchers who were collecting the data to begin to understand the efforts of various policies and projects in different places of the world 
um, along the spectrum of strength for each of these design principles, uh, which are co-governance, enabling state, pooling economies, you know, uh, and uh, uh, tech justice, et cetera. Um, and, and, and what the book reflects <clears throat> are a handful of those cases, about 30 or so cases, <clears throat> excuse me, which we uh, situate as exemplary cases, which is to say that these are the cases that best embody the strength of the design principles. Um, and we hold those up as exemplary, not the only way to do things, but um, to really demonstrate uh, um, what we have found both empirically and also our normative insights on those. And I want to make sure our listeners know that a lot of this data that you've collected is available online at, at commoning.city. Uh, and it's a fun website to poke around at and explore if you're interested in this uh, kind of stuff. So how do you envision that website being used by other folks, whether they're researchers or officials or everyday citizens? Uh, I'll, I'll let Christian answer that. Yeah, uh, we created this is uh, this website as a resource center for those who want to get inspiration and uh, and activate themselves uh, in order to you know experiment approaches similar to the one that uh, we analyzed and surveyed or experimented ourselves. Uh, but it's also a way for uh, scholars and uh, practitioners to, you know, nurture uh, this uh, this this database because, of course, uh, it's just a starting point for us, and uh, we would be very happy to 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 be joined by other scholars and uh, other practitioners that uh, also in a in a critical way because the the the, the idea is that uh, you know this is just. Uh, First step in the in the quest for a more equitable approach to urban governance, and there are issues that and there are difficulties, there are problems. Like in any kind of human phenomenon, nothing is perfect, and we're actually very much engaged on trying to understand if and how some of the critical aspects that we also underline in our in our book can be overcome and can be solved. Uh, so it's, it has to be considered like a large uh, digital research center, research and, <laughs> and activist center, so that uh, people can uh, co-produce uh, new cases, uh, start new experimentations, improve the existing framework and develop it further. And there is a space on the website for if, uh, for someone who is either participating in or knows of um, uh, a project or 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 policy that embeds these principles, uh, for them to add it to, so it's kind of a commons, right? <laughs> the website, in a sense, to it's a shared resource where people cannot just take from but add to um, a shared resource, and we have a simple. Uh, questionnaire that just asks about the basics of the case study and they can add it to the map. So that way we co-produce the knowledge along with the scientific community. All right. Well, so 
think we're moving towards the end of our time here. So I wanted to give you each an opportunity to give a, a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book. Wow, so many people. Uh, I think we spend 10 or 15 pages at the very beginning <laughs> yeah. of the book uh, thanking people from around the world. Uh, but I think that Christian and I would both give a the strongest shout out to our colleague Elena Denictilis, who is a LabGov uh, fellow, was a student at Louis, who is now in the U.S., has spent time at Georgetown Environmental Justice Program, is now at NYU Law School. Uh, without whom I think we could never have finished this project. She has, uh, she's a political scientist with a PhD and uh, was really the person that managed the empirical and data part. Um, there are just so many people from around the world, so many people that, uh, that fostered our thinking, that supported us, that were critical. The Rockefeller Center hosted us in Bellagio. Uh, to uh, to diffuse this method among European and American cities, our, our own universities. There are just so many people. Over to you, Christian. I cannot agree more on on the role of Elena de Nictoris. And, uh, and of course, uh, we have to thank our host institutions, uh, Lewis University and Georgetown University, uh, but also the cities that have been studying and experimenting with us and uh, uh, talking to us, the, the civil servants uh, that worked uh, with us or that you know, uh, somehow gave us uh, a lot of the insights that we then uh, tried uh, to convey in the book. And of course, all the social organizations uh, with which we partnered uh, for different projects, uh, both scientific projects, but also applied projects. Uh, and they're all cited, uh, probably we also forgot someone, but uh, it's, it was really uh, a knowledge as a commons project and uh, it was co-produced. Okay, well then that brings us to our traditional final question, which is, what are you working on next? <laughs> yes. So I think we mentioned this at the beginning. Um, uh, right now, we are working on a energy democracy justice project, um, uh, applying uh, some of the methodology of our co-cities project to trying to understand here and in Europe and eventually other places, uh, the emergence of uh, what they call in Europe energy communities here. We don't have a specific name for them, but basically co-produce, co-govern forms and distributed forms of energy that are helping the, the just transition, the transition to a cleaner economy, but doing so in a way that embeds this co-governance, and that's the democracy part, um, uh, and also uh, uh, pays attention to uh, justice, the justice part, uh, which is to say reducing energy burdens for communities and uh, making sure that all communities uh, are participants in this transition and, 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 and gain the benefits of the transition. In the U.S., as you know, uh, there's a lot of money that is flowing down uh, through federal agencies to states and localities and communities uh, for some of these projects because of the infrastructure and the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, so we're trying to understand uh, the existence of emerging uh, forms of pooled energy, um, uh, how it works, what are the, what's the role of, of, of the state, of 
of the local government as well as the private sector. There's a huge role for utilities. Uh, sometimes they help and sometimes they're a hindrance. Uh, and also of communities and knowledge actors and, as well as social organizations. So that's the big project on the horizon for us. And we are working um, in Europe on uh, especially, uh, you know, a particular version of uh, eco-cities like uh, Science Park, so that uh, all this can be, uh, this cooperation can be uh, embedded in the design and the operational model of, uh, again, because we think that uh, skills and uh, education is very critical for this kind of approaches and uh, science parks or a particular version of science parks could be uh, the way to go. Financing schemes that leverage the momentum for uh, uh, you know, sustainable development goals oriented uh, financing, both public and private financing, and with a specific focus on uh, those regions that I was mentioning, mentioning earlier, which specifically in my case are you know, the regions that are more impacted, uh, from my point of view, uh, which are the Mediterranean and also uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. All right. Well, that all sounds exciting. And I'll look forward to seeing what comes of your, your future work there. So thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Centaur, for having us. Thank you very much. It was such a pleasure. This has been a conversation with Sheila Foster and Christian Ione, authors of Co-Cities, Innovative Transitions Towards Just and Self-Sustaining Communities, published last year by MIT Press.